recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 28th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and once again, thank you for listening. Here is our fourth discussion on the Roman Catholic Church and the humanists of Martin Luther's Germany. This is really a subtopic in a broader discussion which we hope to continue throughout the coming year, which we have titled Martin Luther in Life and Death. In our first presentation in this endeavor, we discussed aspects of Luther's own life, and we saw that he himself was a humanist, one of the so-called poets, who upon having had an epiphany, suddenly turned to Christianity and joined a monastery. He became a priest several years later. From there, we have been presenting a series which we have subtitled The Devil in Luther's Dream, where we have hoped to illustrate the nature of the Roman Catholic Church, that the humanist turned priest, Martin Luther, had later sought to reform. And when he found that he could not reform it, he sought to liberate himself and his German Catholic Church from its clutches. What we call the Reformation should in that essence have instead been called the Liberation. It would eventually result in the Thirty Years' War and the destruction of much of medieval Germany. We have been following something called the Reuschlin Controversy, and that is because the historian that we chose to follow for this series, Johannes Janssen, had wisely chosen this controversy as the centerpiece in order to describe the turmoil which was rising in Germany at the time. There were many Germans, as well as Italians, who sought to destroy the books and the writings of the Jews. As as this issue was once again surfacing in Germany, the lawyer, Kabbalist, and humanist philosopher, Johann Reuschlin, came to the defense of the Jewish writings in published booklets of his own. As Reuschlin was opposed by the theologians of the University of Cologne, which was Germany's largest university, the case came to be heard in the courts of bishops, the emperor, and then even the pope. It not only became a defining case in the struggle between Christianity and the survival of Judaism in Europe in Luther's time, but we have also seen that the greater number of Germany's humanists and young pagans, those who called themselves the poets, whose new philosophy was the direct result of humanism, were rallying themselves to Reuschland's side of the debate, which was in defense of the writings of the Jews. Hopefully, we have already sufficiently explained that the humanists of the 15th and 16th centuries, who were essentially pagans, were not only opposing the church from the outside, but also from the inside. Rather than seek to reform the church 
in favor of true biblical Christianity. They sought to destroy it in favor of anti-Christian and pagan immorality. Notable humanists within the Catholic Church, such as Erasmus and Mutian, had large followings throughout both clerical and secular academic Germany, and they were also actively supporting Reuschland's position, which favored the Jews. Traditional Christians, not only Augustinian monks such as Luther, but also Dominican monks such as Jacob Hoogstraten and Conrad Collin, were opposed to the Jews and wanted to see their books destroyed, if not even the Jews themselves run out of Germany. If they had prevailed, what could Europe have been like today? Yet the humanists and pagans prevailed. And over 30 years later, in his essay on the Jews and their lives, Martin Luther was still urging the destruction of the Jewish books, while he also explained that the Jews were bragging that they had come into the control of Germany. The Jews could only have controlled Germany because they were also greatly influencing the humanists, or many of the humanists were indeed Jews. But the proof of that only lies in the obvious result. 330 years later, Wilhelm Marr was writing to complain that the Jews had already conquered Germany. That was in the 1870s. This is the legacy of humanism and paganism. This is also the inheritance of the secular or humanist or pagan so-called white nationalists of today who are no less whores for the Jews than their predecessors were four and even 500 years ago. We left off from our account with the introduction of a young humanist named Ulrich von Hutten. Our historian now uses the life of Hutton in order to help explain how the humanists, which were already in great numbers among the clerics, had also openly sought to infiltrate and control the courts of the German bishops. It can be established that the court of the de Medici Pope, Leo X, and his predecessor, Julius II, were already overrun with humanists. And our historian will describe that for us as well. Once we realize that humanists were in control of the courts of the bishops and popes, which were in turn using common Christians as their primary source of revenue, then we may realize the importance of Luther's demands for reformation and the later break from the Roman Catholic Church. Now we shall continue this account from our primary source, the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages, 
by Johannes Janssen. Book 3, I'm sorry, Volume 3, Book 5. Published in an English translation by A.M. Christie in London in 1900. This Ulrich von Hutten was a friend of Crotus Rubianus, who had introduced him to the German humanists at the university in Erfurt. While presenting the life of Luther, we also mentioned this Crotus Rubianus because he was a good friend of Luther's in the days when Luther was a humanist. Rubianus was one of those allegedly German poets who despised his allegedly German heritage, as there were many of those at this time who were enamored with Greco-Roman paganism and who had changed their original German names for Latin and Greek names. And here, I'm going to uh, offer a digression, because many modern so-called pagans of Northern Europe would rather identify themselves with ancient Germanic literature, where the pagans of Luther's time were identifying themselves or finding their new identities, ideals, and aspirations in pagan Greek and Roman literature. The people who embrace ridiculous things such as Odinism often persist in claims that Germanic paganism was handed down from generation to generation throughout the centuries. And they are all lying. None of them really know their asses from their proverbial elbows. Modern Germanic paganism was only contrived after the much more recent discovery and translation into modern languages of some ancient Germanic poetry. In the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, continental, continental Germans, outside of perhaps a very few individuals, were totally, totally ignorant of and oblivious to ancient Germanic poetry, tales, and lore based on paganism. Modern Germanic paganism was only contrived after the more recent discovery and translation into modern languages of some ancient Germanic poetry. For instance, Beowulf was not known to modern Englishmen until it was discovered in old manuscripts and translated into English in the mid-19th century. The Poetic Edda was unknown to scholars until the Codex Regius was rediscovered and came to be possessed by a certain Christian bishop in 1643. These things were never read widely until vernacular translations, which were only made in relatively recent decades. 
The first English translation of the Poetic Edda was published in 1797, and the first German translations only appeared a few years sooner than that, I think in 1787. The Prose Edda was never published on the continent of Europe before the 1630s, over a hundred years after the time of which we now speak. Odinists and other neo-pagans are nothing but revisionist clowns following in the footsteps of these German humanists. Real Germanic paganism was all voluntarily abandoned, cast away by real Germans over a thousand years ago because there is no fruit in paganism. The original neo-German pagans found here during the Renaissance knew nothing of Germanic pagan literature. Their own, their own striving for immorality was based on Roman and Greek literature. We left off with the description of Ulrich von Hutten's criticism of Pope Julius II who died the same year that Ulrich von Hutten issued that criticism in 1513. Hutton had been studying and bumming, as he was wont to do, in Italy. Here he evidently attempts to do the same thing in Germany. Ultimately, he succeeds. The humanist academic is a parasite just like the coffee shop hippies of the 19th and 20th centuries, is fully manifest in Ulrich von Hutten, where it is evident that he fed off the system that he desired to destroy rather than to reform. Now we shall continue with this volume of the history of the German people with Ulrich von Hutten on page 67. On his return from Italy in 1514, he tried his luck at the court of the Archbishop of Mayence, or Mainz, as I believe it's spelled in English, Albrecht von Brandenburg, where his patron, Wolf von Stein, a friend of Mutigan's, held an influential post. So we see right there that fellow humanists of Mutian had already had offices in the, in the court of the Archbishop of Mainz. As a revolutionist who would fain have turned the world upside down, Hutton was scarcely a friend of princes. But for the sake of the object they had in view, his party, meaning the pagan humanists of Germany, his party, he said, must make use of this species of humanity and must praise and flatter them as Augustus's and Macenus's 
Mekin. The reference to Mekinus is to Gaius Kilnius Mekinus, who was a friend and political advisor to Octavian, the future Augustus Caesar. They must throw out nets in all directions to catch their favor. They must cringe before them. They must wheedle themselves into their service as lawyers and theologians. Now, this Ulrich von Hutten is already influential among the humanists, and this is his attitude, that the humanists must become sycophants to the bishops and, and princes so that they can gain their favor and subvert them. And he says they must wheedle themselves into their service as lawyers and theologians and not be too proud to accept offices from them. In 1514, he, meaning von Hutten, addressed Albrecht, the Bishop of Mainz, in a poem as the ornament of his age, a jewel of piety, protector of the peace and defender of learning. In this poem, he makes the rhyme call all the river gods together to celebrate the glory of Archbishop Albrecht. And he, he himself comes forward to greet his king and lord as follows. Say, O prince, what more will you achieve, you who in the flower of your youth are already greater than all your predecessors? The prince in question, then a youth of four and twenty, twenty-four years old, and he was an archbishop, did not possess a single merit besides his high birth. But owing to the accident of birth, according to the scandalous usage of the times, after having already been elected Archbishop of Magdeburg and administrator of the Bishopric of Halberstadt, he was promoted in addition to be Archbishop of Mayence and primate of the German church, 24 years old. Even such a young man as Albrecht von Brandenburg was, he had every chance to be as educated as the poets who were seeking to infiltrate and subvert him. Ulrich von Hutten was born only 26 months earlier than von Brandenburg was in 1490. The book of Daniel, three times in chapter 11, warns of the dangers of flattery. And as the Proverbs say, Proverbs 29.5, a man that flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In other words, if somebody's flattering you, they're trying to trap you. The psalm also warns against flatterers. Help. Yahweh, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful fails from among the children of man. They speak vanity, every one his neighbor. With flattering lips 
and with a double heart do they speak. So any young man educated in a Christian education, a man who's even a bishop at 24, should be expected to have read the Psalms and the Proverbs at least once, I would think. Not so with the nobles of Germany in the medieval history, in, in, the, in the medieval period, I should say. Continuing from the bottom of page 67, we see in turn the humanist Erasmus flattering von Hutten. Ostensibly, Erasmus was using his own great influence to elevate the stature of his fellow humanists. Erasmus would also assist in his plan to infiltrate the courts of the bishops. Erasmus prophesied from Hutton's panegyric that a great epic poet was about to appear in Germany. Albrecht sent the poet a present of 200 gold florins and held out to him the prospect of a post at his court as soon as he should have completed the study of jurisprudence, which he had begun in Italy. While the young von Hutton was probably not a Jew, it has long been a device of the Jews to gain power and influence through flattery. The relationship between um, Benjamin Disraeli and Queen Victoria is a prime example. The history of the Frankists in Poland, which we've spoken about earlier in this, in this series of presentations, was also a prime example and should be studied at greater length. The Frankists were converso Jews in Poland who, by systematic flattery in the 18th century, had corrupted much of the Polish noble class and intermarried with them. Back to our book. For this purpose, with pecuniary assistance from Albrecht, Hutton traveled to Rome and later on to Boulogne, cherishing all the time hatred and enmity against the hypocritical corrupt race of theologians and monks. With um, many of Hutton's statements, he, he really hates the um, theologians and monks a lot more than he appears to hate the papacy and, and, and other trappings of church structure. While in Rome, he followed the great Reuschling case with close attention, but thought it a matter of perfect indifference whether the Pope condemned Reuschling or not. A single arrow shot by Erasmus at a scoundrel, he wrote, could not be of less consequence to me than ten of that Florentine's anathemas, which for many the valid reasons are no longer much regarded by anyone possessing any remnant of manliness. With Erasmus, Hutton had already made acquaintance at Mayence in the year 1514, and soon after that he began to praise the genuine theology which this famous scholar had resuscitated. 
So we see that the humanists were lauding Erasmus for his so-called genuine theology. We've already illustrated the fact that Erasmus was really a pagan humanist, and he was not a Christian at all. Although in his enthusiasm for, enthusiasm for heathen antiquity, he had remained in complete ignorance of all Christian science, and especially of theological matters, he addressed Erasmus in the letter as the German Socrates, who was no less solicitous about the education of the German people than Socrates had been about that of his own nation. He said that he should cleave to him as faithfully as Alcibiades had to Socrates. With the, the literary examples and the analogies chosen by men such as von Hutten, we should learn something of their philosophical and moral ideals. While Socrates no doubt had a great mind and had many seemingly good ideas, on the other side of the coin, Socrates was also an immoral man and a pagan. He is accused of homosexuality. And this Alcibiades, who Hutton compares himself to, was allegedly one of the lovers of Socrates, as well as one of his students. It is established that Alcibiades was from one of the noble families of Athens, who had advocated the aggressive foreign policy that helped to destroy both Athens and Sparta in the Peloponnesian Wars. And Alcibiades was very much the hawk who advocated that Athens have an aggressive foreign policy. The hawks drove Athens into the ground. Even if he was not a, a homosexual, a sexual deviant. He advocated offending political interests at the expense of many hundreds of thousands of the lives of his fellow Greeks. This is the legacy of humanism, and von Hutten, as well as Erasmus, were seeking to ensure its continuity. It is also evident that von Hutten just like the modern neo-pagans, made himself the enemy of learning which he knew little about. We'll continue with the bottom of page 68 of our book, Arrows Against Scoundrels, to use Hutton's expression, had again been shot by Erasmus in 1515 by the publication of a new edition of the praise of folly, with commentaries in which the learning of the schoolmen, the institution of monasticism, and the papal chair were viciously attacked. This edition was given out to be the work of one Gerardus Listrius. Erasmus was a high official in the church. He was a priest, 
and he wouldn't dare write such things under his own name. This edition was, so he was a coward as well. This edition was given out to be the work of one Gerardus Listrius, but in reality it proceeded, the chief part of it at any rate, from Erasmus himself. The full gist and malice of the praise of folly were now first thoroughly appreciated, and the growing fame of Erasmus added to the bitterness of party feeling engendered by the Reuschland controversy, procured for the second edition of Furious Sale. At the time of its appearance, other satires of even grosser nature were in course of preparation in Mutian circle, notably the Epistolae Verorum Obscurum, which means in Latin, the Letters of Obscure Men, written by Crotus Rubianus, the former friend of Luther's, and Ulrich von Hutten. These letters, the first part of which appeared in 1515 and 1516, and the remainder in 1517, were expected to strike the death blow at obscurantism. We're going to um, take a diversion here and read a paragraph about obscurantism from an unlikely, but in this case, at least, I mean, sometimes it's honest, a very candid source. This is from Wikipedia, and it says, the term obscurantism derives from the title of the 16th century satire, the Letters of Obscure Men, which is exactly what we're reading about here in our book, based upon the intellectual dispute <clears throat> between the German humanist Johann Reuschlin and the Dominican monk, such as Johannes Pfefferkorn, who's the Converso Jew, about whether or not all Jewish books should be burned as unchristian. Earlier, in 1509, the monk Pfefferkorn had obtained permission from Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor, to incinerate all copies of the Talmud known to be in the Holy Roman Empire. The Letters of Obscure Men satirized the Dominican monk's arguments at burning unchristian works. So there we have it. So the humanist pagans, Crotus Rubianus and Ulrich von Hutten, were satirizing Dominican monks in defense of the Talmud and the Jews. Those were the same Dominican monks who had preserved the classical literature for centuries, realizing its importance. So whose side were the pagan humanists really on? We'll return to our history from page 69. Nearly the whole of the letters, the letters of obscure men, nearly the whole of the letters relate to the Reuschling controversy. But their real object was not so much to shower scorn on Reuschling's antagonists as to attack the authority of the church. 
As Justice Menius rightly pointed out later on, the Cologne obscurantists, meaning the Cologne theologians, the word obscurantist is used to describe somebody who would hide writings, who, who would hide books from others. And that's how the Cologne theologians were being described by the pagans that were defending the Jews. The humanists, the pagans at this time, saw value in all writings and believed it should all be out there and all be esteemed in equal value. And anyone who actually knows anything about the history of civilizations knows that no civilization can stand if that is the case. If we see value in every philosophy, in every writing, we're going to constantly be fighting against one another. The word culture is rooted with the word cult. Without a common cult, you can't have a culture. It's that simple. As Justice Menius rightly pointed out later on, the Cologne obscurantists were not the real mark of the libelous shafts. The authority of the church was already being undermined. Erasmus had no share in the composition of these letters. On the contrary, he deprecated their tone, at least that was his public position. But Prince Carpi was justified in saying that it was the praise of folly that had put their weapons into the hands of the authors of the letters, and that Erasmus was thus their spiritual father, in substance, they were in fact little more than a production, a reproduction of the praise of folly carried to the extreme of grossness and personality. The most objectionable, par objectionable parts of them, as in the earlier satire, are those which make fun of the Holy Ghost. Erasmus had allowed himself free and irreverent use of scripture for the purposes of caricature. In the letters of obscure men, monks who were held up to derision were made to quote passages from the Bible in extenuation of obscene matters. Erasmus, a man devoid of all moral seriousness, set himself up as an eloquent preacher of morality and turned the whole system of monasticism into ridicule, but he abstained from mentioning individuals. His successors, Crotus and Hutton, bespattered, named individuals with the mud in which they themselves wallowed. And, and this is all very, um, a very common ploy of projection which we see employed by the Jews in recent history with great expertise, especially when it comes to Tsarist Russia and National Socialist Germany. 
Crotus and Hutton bespattered named individuals with the mud in which they themselves wallowed, and did not even spare the immaculate Arnold von Tungern, whom they accused of writing most shameful things and of carrying on an adulterous connection with the wife of Feppercorn. The similes that this sounds like the um but like the same ad hominem attacks and, and 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 trash that we see from the trolls on the internet every day in our own times. The similes in the epistles are of the are of the most offensive description. Our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the writings of Protus and Ruby. Curtis Rubianus and Ulrich von Hutton. Our Lord Jesus Christ is compared to Cadmus. As Cadmus went forth in search of his sister, so Christ seeks after his sister, the human soul, because Christ had two nativities, one before all time and another in his human form. He is compared to the twice-born Bacchus. Semele, who brought up Bacchus, signifies the Virgin Mary. The Pope is spoken of with the utmost derision. Confession and the worship of relics are ridiculed. The holy vestment at Treves is called a shabby old coat. And the three holy kings of Cologne are said to have been probably three Westphalian peasants. And, and of course, that, that's actually a stab at the Dominican, the, the Cologne theologians who were Dominican monks. The genuine theology of Erasmus, which had become a stock phrase, plays its part in these satires and is held out as a means for reforming the church and dissipating the errors which have crept in. And, and we've seen the humanist view of reforming the church earlier in these presentations. If they had really sought to reform the church, that would have been a noble endeavor. However, they actually sought to replace Christianity with paganism within the church. The church was also pagan to a great degree. It was pagan in its in relation to its sacramentalism and other superficial rites, it was based on imperial Rome in relation to the government which the church imposed on the nations of Europe, the, the, the pope, the bishops, the cardinals. But these men weren't Catholic pagans, and they weren't Christian at all. These men were immoral pagans who despised the church and its authority, but they also despised and didn't even understand true Christianity. They despised Christianity. Their immorality caused them to be contrary to Christianity. And these German humanists who fancied themselves as poets were pagans and expressed the moral values of pagans. From want of linguistic knowledge, this is the 
slander against the clone theologians in the letters. From want of linguistic knowledge, the divines were not in a position to understand the scriptures. Mutian also is here included among the men chosen out to punish those people who are playing their last card. Hoogstraten, Jacob Hoogstraten, Dominican monk, Cologne theologian. Hoogstraten, in his apology, expressed himself as follows concerning the writers of this libelous book. We do not intend to write in the style of those calumniators whose mouths are full of hatred and bitterness, but empty of wisdom and learning, and who delight in abusive language such as one scarcely hears from the lowest roughs. God himself, to whom be eternal praise, will judge between them and us. He who is throned above the clouds, says the same writer, Hoogstraten, in an apostrophe to Reuschlin, knows our hearts and is a witness that we are innocent victims of all this slander and abuse. He knows that we fervently pray to him without ceasing and that we have not followed the example of those professors of false doctrines who besmirch godly men with damaging obloquy. None who are lovers of truth will ever be able to say that the theologians of Cologne behaved craftily or treacherously towards you, but rather that they have only struggled for the defense of Christian truth. Nothing that we have done has been prompted by hatred or done for the satisfaction of our own vanity. We have only acted in righteous conformity to papal injunctions, much earlier ones which had banned the writings of the Jews and ordered that the Talmud be burned, which require of us as a duty to withstand all error. And, of course, the writings of the Jews were accounted by organized Christians as error, as they should be. The, the historian goes on to talk about Pfefferkorn, the converso Jew, answering the letters of obscure men called the epistles here. Pfefferkorn also took up the cudgels against the epistles and issued a pamphlet called the Defense, written both in German and Latin, and a little volume called Strike Booklin, in which publications he inveighed against the irreverent handling of sacred things in the epistles, and also against the calumnious charges aimed at him personally. These pamphlets appeared in 1516 and 17. Pfefferkorn dedicated them to Albrecht, Archbishop of Mainz, whom he implored to take measures against the Jews' books to close the Reuschling case, which had now been dragging on for three years, and to vindicate him against the impugnment of his, or impugnment, of his honor before both a secular and an ecclesiastical tribunal. Albrecht, however, threw aside the pamphlets without reading them and sent the bearer away without any answer. This behavior of the archbishop was not prompted by any idea that 
Peppercorn had gone too far in his demands against the Jews. For while he, meaning Peppercorn, only proposed that their books should be taken from them and that they should be compelled to earn their living by honest labor and to attend sermons at stated times, Albrecht was himself, and, and those same things Martin Luther had advised in On the Jews and Their Lies 30 years later. Albrecht was himself at the very time working, and this is important to understand because this Albrecht of von Brandenburg is only 24 years old when he at this time, in, in 1513, I believe. Now, this is important to understand because it never happens. Because Albrecht and his court become inundated with humanists. What's about to be stated never happened. Albrecht was himself at the very time, 1513, or I'm sorry, 1516 and 17, working to bring about their perpetual banishment from Germany, meaning the Jews, organizing a league for the purpose and endeavoring to gain more princes and towns to the cause. But, and here's the but, this is why it never happened, but he had been caught in the nets of the humanists with whom he had surrounded himself and had taken a decided line against the Cologne faculty, whom he would not even suffer to bring their cause before a court of justice. So Albrecht, who initially had intended to banish the Jews from Germany, did a complete turnaround because he was caught in the nets of the humanists with whom he had surrounded himself. The expulsion never happened, and it was never even tried. Martin Luther was still begging the princes of Germany 30 years later to do something about the Jews. Albrecht was... Um, Archbishop of Mayence in Magdeburg. He was Archbishop until 1545. That's two years after Martin Luther wrote On the Jews and Their Lies. And it's 27 years after where we are right now. May the earth open up and swallow up that baptized Hebrew and all the meaning Peppercorn, and all the poisonous crew of hypocritical theologians and monks who are backing him up. So Albrecht's physician in ordinary, Henry Stromer, had written to Reuschlin in August 1516. So this is interesting. We have um, Peppercorn writing to appeal to the um, Jewish physician of the De Medici Pope. In, I'm sorry. Reuschland wrote to appeal to the Jewish physician of the De Medici Pope and obtained help from him several years before this. And now, 
the physician of the Bishop of Mainz, Albrecht von Brandenburg, he is taking a position against those who want to eliminate the books of the Jews. That's just interesting. It was Archbishop Albrecht's ambition to make his electoral court a center of learning and art and to imitate the De Medici's on German soil. And the De Medici's had embraced the Jews, which we see Albrecht was initially wanting to expel them until he surrounded himself with humanists. Where in the whole of Germany, writes Hutton, is there a scholar whom Albrecht does not know, or what man of learning and culture has ever addressed himself to the archbishop, whom he is not loaded with his favor and generosity? Artists like Albert Durer, and, and Albert Durer was actually a very pious Christian, like Matthäus Grunewald, miniature painters like Behem and Glockenden received from him frequent commissions. Sculptors and gold artificers were paid princely sums by him to enrich with splendid works of art the Cathedral of Mainz and its treasuries. The archbishop was passionately fond of music, and he procured musicians from far and near even from Italy, to heighten the charms of those sumptuous banquets which were often graced by the presence of ladies. This is a man who would be um, at the forefront of the in fight over indulgences and against Martin Luther. So now we see why he, why he needed to, the indulgences to raise revenues. This is only part of the story. Richly embroidered carpets and sparkling mirrors adorned his halls and apartments. Costly dishes and recurche wines covered his tables. I'm probably destroying that word. As prince elector, he reveled in outward pomp and magnificence. He had a bodyguard of 150 armed riders. Crowds of court servants in splendid liveries accompanied him when he rode in and out. Pages of noble birth were trained at his court in an elegant knightly demeanor. The brilliancy of his retinue, elegant, the whole atmosphere, his entourage, were a theme for countless panegyrists, poets who were kissing his butt, let's put it that way, but were scarcely in accordance with the position and calling of archbishop and primate of the German church. Albrecht was by no means a man of vital inward piety or of serious moral character. He had never even mastered the groundwork of theology, and he did not concern himself at all about the practical training of the clergy. While regarding the scholastic learning that had hitherto been in vogue as a remnant of barbarism, he held forth in rapturous terms 
about the divine genius of Erasmus, which was about to restore to its pristine glory the degenerate theology of the present day. So he became persuaded that pagan immorality could restore theology to its, to its pristine glory. He promised Erasmus his zealous support, and Erasmus, in return, extolled Albrecht in a letter to Reuschlin as the sole ornament of Germany in our age. How quickly such a young man could become corrupt when elevated to such a great position. Lamenting grievously, however, that he should have lowered himself by becoming a monk of the Romish Pope and accepting a cardinal's hat. So Erasmus is a priest who's extolling Albrecht kissing his tail, being a sycophant, and flattering him. He's extolling Albrecht as the sole ornament of Germany in our age, and even though Erasmus is a Catholic priest, he's lamenting grievously that Albrecht lowered himself by becoming a monk of the Romish Pope and accepting a cardinal's hat. That's the church at Luther's time. On one side, the traditionalists were tyrants. On the other side, the humanists were immoral pagans. And the church was divided. So the pagan humanists flattered the all-too-young archbishop. And the archbishop, in turn, rewarded the pagan humanists. And Germany in the end, was kept safe for the Jews because Albrecht's plan to expel them never transpired. Now, I'm searching for more information on this, and so far it's been difficult to find. Back to our historian. The poets who resided at the archbishop's court, free thinkers, all of them, and scoffers at religion, held their meetings according to the Letters of Obscure Men, the booklets, held their meetings in the Crown Hotel. These are the, po the, the pagan humanist so-called poets. They carried swords and rapiers at their side. They gambled for indulgence tickets, carried on blasphemous talk, and made game of any unlucky monks or doctors whose evil stars led them to the same resort. Ulrich von Hutton, one of the frequenters of this inn, the Crown Hostel, that the... Um, probably belonged to the archbishop. Hutton makes a monk relate in the epistole, in the letters, that he had once said that if the Dominicans treated him as they had treated Reuschlin, he would proclaim a feud against them and cut off the noses and ears of any of them who fell into his hands. With Hutton, Talk of this sort was not mere bravado, 
Erasmus tells later on, as a fact generally known by the people, that Hutton had actually cut off the ears of two preaching monks who had fallen into his hands, and had committed many similar acts of brutality. Feud and rapine were thoroughly in accordance with his wild, undisciplined nature. Once in 1509, he requested his cousin Ludwig von Hutton to knock down a certain tradesman who was an enemy of his on the way to the Frankfurt Fair. He was not to kill him, as that would not be advisable, but to shut him up in the tower, and he himself would finish off the punishment. Of course, um, Ulrich von Hutton was from a notable Franconian family. Before Hutton was actually received into the service of Archbishop Albrecht on his return from Italy in the autumn of 1817, he brought out a new edition of Laurentius Valla's book on the fictitious donation of Constantine to Pope Sylvester and his successors. And he accompanied it with a preface to Pope Leo X, which exceeded all that had ever been written against papacy in virulent invective, scorn, and derision. He described all the former popes as robbers, plunderers, tyrants, and extortioners, who had put a money price on the pardon of sins and had turned the punishments of the next world into a source of revenue for themselves. And of course, many of Hutton's complaints against the church are legitimate, but none of the practices that Hutton complains about are actually Christian. That's the divergence of the church from the, from the scriptures, and Christianity takes the blame for that, when in reality... Christianity is not to blame, not at all. None but the great Leo X, said the hypocrite. Hutton had been criticizing Leo, and now he's being a flatterer to Leo. So the historian calls him a hypocrite. None but the great Leo X had been a good pope. That same Leo, of whom Hutton had spoken a short time before, as a frivolous, avaricious Florentine. Leo, he now declared, had restored peace and justice, truth and freedom, and was prepared to give up his secular dominion. He would, of his own accord, graciously renounce what must have been taken from him by force if he had been a bad pope. It had indeed long been the maxim of Hutton that in the sacred cause of freedom, force would soon become imperative. And he had shown plainly enough in his triumph of Reuschland what might be expected from his party, meaning the poets, supposing the later to have acquired sufficient strength for the execution of its plans. In this poem, in which he loads Reuschland's enemies with chains and showers insults on them, he calls on the hangman to mangle and mutilate Pfefferkorn and drag him along by the feet. He gloats gruesomely over the tortures 
which the hangman is to perpetrate on Pfefferkorn. We are going to, rather reluctantly, repeat the poem which the historian records. Of course, this isn't the entire poem. It's only the portion relating to the converso Jew Pfefferkorn. But we're going to repeat them. Repeat it. It's about 12 lines. I'm not going to try to read it as poetry. Hurl him down with his hated face to the earth. Upward, straighten his knees, that he may not behold the heavens, that his staring glance may not perturb you. With his slandering mouth, let him gnaw the earth. With his lips, let him feed on the dust. Why do you tarry, you hangman? Make haste, open, his, open wide his mouth. Tear out his tongue, tear it out, that author of unspeakable evil. Hack off his ears and his nose, and fix right fast in his seat. The iron, haul him around by his knees, that his face and his heart may sweep the earth. Knock out his teeth and make his lips innocuous. Have you fastened his hands behind him and gagged him tight? Then crop off his fingertips as well, O hangman. And the only value for which we repeated that poem here is sort of the childishly poor quality of intellect of these German pagans is brought to light. Yet Hutton reflects the sort of character which, with which the Archbishop of Mainz had surrounded himself. And Hutton is also the sort of Cretan that Erasmus, the supposedly great priest, was promoting as genius. Our historian continues, To many people it seemed incomprehensible that an archbishop and a primate of the German church should have taken such a man as Hutton into his service. The ecclesiastical and the secular princes, the first even more than the last, wrote Prince Carpi ten years later, with reference to Hutton's literary productions, are now reaping fruits to which, a great ex which to a great extent they have sown themselves, or whose growth, at any rate, they have fostered. It is essentially with the poets that all the risings against church and commonwealth, all the violations of law and order which we see around us have had their origin. But who are they who encouraged these same poets and made use of their services? Church dignitaries of the highest rank have not infrequently harbored at their voluptuous courts flatterers and sycophants who, in a semi-pagan spirit, rallied at everything that was sacred to the nation and aimed at the subversion of all existing institutions.
the 1960s, hit Germany in the 1500s. This impious, poesy-mongering, and literary parasitism had resulted in immeasurable evil, and the worldliness and irreligiousness of ecclesiastical princes were largely to blame for the contempt in which the clerical status had come to be held and for the anarchy with which church and state were threatened. But this unholy poesy-mongering, Prince Carpi might have added, had met with encouragement at the Romish court, and Romish court is the translator's term, the translator is English and evidently not sympathetic to, um, to Roman Catholicism, had met with encouragement at the Romish court even much earlier than in Germany. And the Renaissance had already unfolded its brilliant and seductive blossoms in Rome long before it had become recognized in Germany. A very small proportion of the 120 poets who lived in Rome under Leo X and besieged the theaters, the palaces, and even the churches can be credited with any Christian belief or sentiment. Now, earlier in these presentations, we had seen that Prince Carpi, whose name was Albert III of Pio, had complained about the anti-Christian nature of humanist and church a hundred years before it hit Germany. And he was older. He, w he was contemporary to this time, so he saw what was going on in Germany and realized that it's the same thing that happened in Italy and would lead to the subversion of Christian Germany. The um, Albert III Pio was actually um, an adversary of Erasmus for 30 years and they were writing against each other and publishing against each other for 30 years. And Albert Pio was the Christian. Prince Carpi was the Christian and sought to uphold traditional Christianity for, for all intents and purposes. The um, Roman Catholic Church before the humanists was identified as traditional Christianity where Erasmus sought to subvert it. Albert III Pio was eventually attacked by Charles V and deprived of his family's estates. So I wonder why. I don't know if the two events are directly connected, but it would be interesting to find out who was influencing Charles V at that time to do that. The courts of very many among the German ecclesiastical princes, notably that of the Archbishop of Mainz, were in crying contradiction to the vocation of church dignitaries. But the court of Leo X, with its extravagant expenditure in card playing, theaters, and all matters 
of worldly entertainments was still more flagrantly opposed to the position of chief overseer of the church. The iniquity of Rome far exceeded that of the ecclesiastical princes of Germany. Indeed, the worldliness and profligacy of the later would scarcely have reached the point it did, or at any rate would not have been tolerated for so long had it not been for the example set by the pontifical court. So all of the Roman Catholic Church was caught up in lasciviousness at this time. In Italy, moreover, a movement of emancipation from the ancient traditions of Christian scholarship and art and the spirit of irreverence for the great monuments of the Christian past had been in progress long before the taint of heathenism had begun to infect learning and science in Germany. This is the papacy which Martin Luther had come to despise, one that was living sumptuously off of the tithes and the indulgence money being collected mostly from the German people. We have seen the lifestyle of the Archbishop of Mainz, Bishop Albrecht, described here. He was the first recipient of Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses, which Luther had written and published in 1517. That was the same year that the last of the brazenly impious Letters of Obscure Men were published by Clotus Rubianus and Ulrich von Hutton, who were living at the expense of that same bishop. Albrecht never responded to the letter that Luther had written to him along with the 95 Theses. Instead, he had them he had them checked for heresy and sent them to Rome. But the real heretics he was supporting they were living at his expense and pleasure. The world was turned upside down by the fifteen hundreds. Returning to page 78 of our history, one of the most striking proofs of this, referring to the humanist disdain for Roman Catholic monuments and tradition in, in the court of Leo X, the Medici Pope, he was actually, um, Leo X was actually Giovanni de Medici. One of the most striking proofs of this was the order issued by Pope Julius II. He was the Pope before Leo X, and he was also a humanist, and his court was also infested with humanism. The order issued by Pope Julius II for the demolition of the ancient Basilica of St. Peter's, the shrine for centuries of universal Christendom. I wouldn't exactly call it Christendom, Catholicism. In order to erect on, his, on its ruins a facsimile of the Pantheon. Now, now, the Pantheon is an ancient pagan 
Roman edifice in Rome, which actually still stands today and is very well preserved, but for some reason the Pope wanted his own pantheon. The scheme met with much disapproval among the population of Rome, and cries of lamentation were loud in Germany over the impending destruction of this venerable sanctuary. The opinion was uttered that such a project could have been inspired by no good evangelical spirit, but by the evil genius of profane art, and that it would not bring a blessing, but rather a curse on the country. Julius, too, had proclaimed a sale of indulgences for laying the foundations of this new St. Peter's Church. Leo Tan renewed the sale in 1514 in order to raise money for the completion of the building and employed the minorities, the minorities were Franciscan monks, to proclaim the bulls relating to the sale. The chief papal commissioner for North Germany was the Archbishop Albert of Mayence, and it occurred to him that he might profit by this favorable opportunity for paying off the debt which he had incurred with the Fuggers, the Fuggers, F-U-G-G-E-R-S, with the Fuggers of Augsburg for remittance of the pallium money to Rome. These pallium fees amounted at that time in the Archbishopric of Mayence, or Mainz, to a sum of not less than 20,000 Rhenish florins, which had to be contributed by the different provinces of the diocese. Within the space of one decade, this enormous sum had been paid up twice after the death of Archbishop Berthold von Hennenberg in 1504 and of Jacob von Liebenstein in 1508. Hence, the cathedral chapter on a fresh vacancy of the papal chair in 1514 after the death of Uriel von Geminchen had gladly accepted Albert's proposal. If he were chosen archbishop to bear the costs of the pallium himself, Albert had borrowed the money from the Fuggers, and the later were now referred to the Pope's dealers for repayment of this debt out of the proceeds of the sale of indulgences half of which was to be handed over to them and the other half to the building fund of St. Peter's. The Fuggers, maybe it's Fuggers or Fuggers, but it's Fuggers. The Fuggers were an immensely rich family of international bankers based in Augsburg, Germany, which is west-northwest of Munich in Bavaria. They were the German Rothschilds of the 15th and 16th centuries. With a, um, a precursory inspection, they seem to have been German 
and seem not to have been Jews, but I can't yet determine if there was an actual Jewish connection. Others have already raised that question, and it's seen easily on Internet search engines. Interestingly, when Martin Luther stood trial in 1520, the Fuggers were from Augsburg, the trial was before Cardinal Cayetanus of Augsburg. So that may be a coincidence, and maybe not. Continuing from page 79, this disgraceful bargain had been concluded in the summer of 1514, but was not carried into effect until 1517. At the beginning of this year, the preaching of indulgences was started, and almost simultaneously, the church was violently convulsed by the appearance on the scene of the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther. Here we will leave off with our presentation from the history of the German people for the time being. The pallium is a sort of sash which the Pope and his bishops where, out of custom, the, um, the pallium was granted to certain of the British priests of the old British church who volunteered to align themselves with Rome, and it was granted as a gift for doing that. The German bishops had to pay the Pope of Rome in order to have the pallium. The pallium was the symbol of their seat. You didn't sit in the seat of the bishop without the pallium, and you had to pay for it. And we see that the pallium cost Albrecht von Brandenburg 20,000 Rhenish florins, which was a considerable gold florins, which was a considerable sum of money, and he in turn would seek to collect that fee from the churches of his bishopric. So it was actually sort of like a, uh, a payment to Rome in, in return for being granted the seat of a bishop that was over and above other monies collected by Rome from the churches. Now, Albrecht was in a position to obtain the seat of archbishop because he volunteered that if he would be elected, he would pay for the pallium out of his own fees because Mainz had lost a string of former archbishops in quick succession that would be very costly to them because they would have to pay the Pope every time, the 20,000 florins, every time a new archbishop is appointed. So we see how Albert von Brandenburg became archbishop at such a young age because he basically bribed the cathedrals and the churches of Mainz to get himself elected. And then he turns to these fuggers, that this banking family in Augsburg, and borrows the money from them instead of paying it out of his own pocket. 
So now he is once in on the indulgences so that he could raise the money to pay the bankers. Indulgences were the primary complaint against the church in Luther's 95 Theses, and these would ultimately spark the Reformation. When we return to this series on Martin Luther, we shall discuss Luther's 95 Theses. We shall discuss the Fifth Lateran Council, which was presided over first by Julius II and then by Leo X, the Dimidici Pope. And they're important to understand the control which the papacy had sought to maintain over Christian Germany, while at the same time, it scoffed at Christianity. We'll also discuss Johann Tetzel, who should be the poster child exemplifying just how a man with a doctorate in theology could be nothing but a whore for the state. That's all he was, this supposed doctor of theology. Hopefully for now, we have adequately explained both the pagan humanism, which had fully infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church both in Italy and Germany by this time, and hopefully we have adequately described the real devil of Luther's dream. What Martin Luther was fighting against. However, as we said in the past, Luther's success was a two-edged sword, and the humanists who despised Christianity, they later on also embraced Luther and saw him as an opportunity in their own desire for liberation from the oppressive Roman Church. The liberation which Martin Luther's theology brought to northern Germany actually ended up keeping Europe safe for the humanists and for the Jews as well, even though Luther himself wanted them run off. I will be here tomorrow afternoon at 2 p.m. with Sven Longshanks. We'll be discussing the state of right-wing political parties in Europe. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.